We are going to take a look at Genesis chapter 20 this morning, and I'll, you know, I'll say a lot about this later on, but this story feels like another time around the block from something that happened in Genesis chapter 12. So I want you to pay attention uh, to that if you were tracking along, and if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry, I'll tell you later. Let's take a breath and prepare our hearts to hear the word of God. A reading from Genesis chapter 20. Abraham journeyed from there to the Negev region and settled between Kadesh and Shur. While he lived as a temporary resident in Gerar, Abraham said about his wife, Sarah, she's my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God appeared to Abimelech in a dream at night and said to him, You're as good as dead because of the woman you have taken, for she is someone else's wife. Now, Abimelech had not gone near her. He said, Lord, would you really slaughter an innocent nation? Did Abraham not say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. I've done this with a clear conscience and with innocent hands. Then in the dream, God replied to him, Yes, I know that you have done this with a clear conscience. That is why I have kept you from sinning against me and why I did not allow you to touch her. But now give back the man's wife. Indeed, he is a prophet and he will pray for you. Thus, you will live. But if you don't give her back, know that you will surely die along with all who belong to you. Early in the morning, Abimelech summoned all his servants. When he told them about all these things, they were terrified. Abimelech summoned Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? What sin did I commit against you that you would cause that would cause you to bring such great guilt on me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, What prompted you to do this thing? Abraham replied, because I thought, surely no one fears God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. What's more, she is indeed my sister, my father's daughter, but not my mother's daughter. She became my wife when God made me wander from my father's house. I told her, this is what you can do to show your loyalty to me. Every place we go, say about me, he is my brother. So Abimelech gave sheep, cattle, male and female servants to Abraham. He also gave his wife, Sarah, back to him. Then Abimelech said, look, my land is before you. Live wherever you please. To Sarah, he said, look, I have given a thousand pieces of silver to your brother. This is compensation for you so that you will stand vindicated before all who are with you. Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech as well as his wife and female slaves, so that they were able to have children. For the Lord had caused infertility to strike every woman in the household of Abimelech because he took Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this moment, we're quiet before you and listening. Would you speak to us by your spirit about your word?
Lord, give us eyes to see what you're showing us in the scriptures, ears to hear what you're saying to us, hearts to believe. Give us your spirit that by your strength we might obey and live righteously before the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to apologize in advance for this opening illustration, but um, let me open with a few lines from the great 20th century philosopher, Britney Spears. <laughs> Oops, I did it again. I played with your heart, got lost in the game. Anyone? Oh, baby, baby. Oops, you think that I'm in love, that I'm sent from above. I'm not that innocent. Mm, let's ponder these lines for a moment. Okay, okay. So, yeah, so Britt, yeah, she, she got lost in the game. Yeah, we get it. Um, she, uh, instinct, desire, a need for power and control, all of that took over in her time of need, according to the song. Uh, this world may make someone like her feel vulnerable, but gosh, when the boys like you, you've got special power, special protection, special treatment. And actually, we all use tricks like this when we feel vulnerable, when we feel weak. We, we find ways to protect ourselves. We've been doing this from the very beginning. In fact, we've been doing this at least since the days of Abraham. Genesis 20 is our proof, except in Abraham's case, there's no oops. <laughs> By his own admonition, uh, his own admission, he, he, he just did it again, according to plan. He meant to do this, to lie about, or at least to tell a half-truth about his wife, Sarah. The story happened back in chapter 12 when he went to Egypt. He was afraid for his life there, so he said Sarah's his sister. She gets taken into Pharaoh's household. That's what happened back then. And of course, back then the risk paid off. Yeah, of course, Sarah's life was in danger and her well-being was in danger, but when all was said and done, Abraham was he was wealthy. He had been given uh, animals and people, all sorts of possessions. So why not just play it back? If it works that well, why not do it again? So a few decades later, they are sticking to the same plan. When it seems prudent, say that your siblings to save Abraham's neck. Sarah's neck is a whole different situation. She's just at risk in both cases. It's interesting that this passage actually echoes chapter 12 because that's the introduction to Abraham. That's where we see him for the first time and we get that the mission for Abraham's life, the purpose for his life. And it's the same purpose that his descendants would have and that they're learning now that they are delivered from Egypt and trying to figure out who they are in the wilderness outside of Egypt. You know, who, who are we? What are we about? Well, they look back at their ancestor and see his mission. In chapter 12, God says, go to the land I will show you and I will bless you and make of you a great nation. And through you, I will bless the nations. Interesting. 
He'll be a father of a great nation, and through him all the nations will be blessed. In chapter 12, when it happened the first time, and in chapter 20, when it happened the second time, both of those promises are under threat. Both are at risk. If Sarah is taken and Abraham doesn't get her back, they have no descendants. There's no chance of them having children. She's in another man's household. And when they deceive their neighbors, or when they put their neighbors at risk by their behavior, which is what happens in both times, they're not exactly passing along the blessing to them, are they? The first audience of Genesis were the Israelites, right? They're recently delivered from Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness. And they're surrounded, you guys, by scary people. The people are probably normal people, but people groups become scary when a giant crowd of new people wanders into their land. We're kind of territorial by instinct. Like, what are you doing here? This is our land. These are our resources. Like, don't mess with us. And so they're surrounded by groups like the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, and others. So the Israelites have this same purpose. Continue to become a great nation as Abraham's descendants and somehow be a conduit of blessing to the nations. But sometimes those two commands become contradictory. At least they feel contradictory. We have to protect our own skin, right? We have to, we have to keep ourselves safe if we're going to become a great nation or continue becoming a great nation, if we're going to continue to survive, and if we're under threat from our neighbors, then we're not exactly thinking about how to bless them. We're thinking about how to protect ourselves from them. The tension between self-preservation and concern for the nations, it existed for them then, and it exists for us now. It's present in every family, I think. It's present in every congregation. Gosh, when we were going through trying to figure out this location, thinking about buying a building, and thinking about the impacts on our budget of like, you know, mortgage payments and things like that, you, you start thinking like, wow, I wonder if we're paying so much more a month to have a place to meet, you know, to protect our own skin, how will that impact our ability to reach our neighbors and serve our neighbors? And those things often feel like they're at tension with one another, right? So we're going to look at these two threats, the threat to the promise of being a great nation and the threat to the blessing to the nations because they're both under threat. So the threat to the promise. Okay, in chapter 18, God overtly said to Abraham and Sarah, you two, Abraham and Sarah, are going to be the parents of this great nation. You, this will come through your bodies. That's that's the last time we were really focusing on the two of them. And so we're within a year of that because the angel said, or the Lord said, in a, a year's time, I'll come back and you'll have a baby. So it's like weeks or months 
since that happened. That memory is fresh in their mind. But then they go to this new region and they get scared. And what do they do? They give Sarah away. Well, Abraham gives Sarah away, so to speak. It's putting, obviously, their ability to bear children at risk. It's a direct challenge. But, okay, we can kind of think about it from a biblical standpoint, but what I experienced, I, I, I got to talk with quite a number of people about this passage this week, and, and what I experienced reading it and what almost anyone I talked to experienced reading it is more, not, not just the stuff about, oh, well, this is putting the specific thing that God said to Abraham at risk, but Abraham's doing the same thing over again. Will God put up with this? It it actually connects to a deep need that we all feel in our hearts. We need to see how this plays out because we repeat our worst offenses with no end. The stuff that we hate the most happens to be the same stuff that we keep doing. And we keep doing even though we know it is putting distance between us and the Lord and between us and other people, we are wondering constantly, when are my failures too many? When are they too much? When I lose my temper at home in another obviously selfish moment, when I find a sneaky way to self-promote my own acts of righteousness, when I, as a preacher, literally Do not practice what I preach like the later that day of preaching something. When I convince myself that certain types of entertainment are okay and then realize after the fact that it polluted my mind and heart. When I find myself embarrassed at fellow believers and judge them rather than joining them to promote Christ. When I avoid a hard conversation because it's uncomfortable I'm, guys, I'm just, I'm just reading my own mail here, but maybe you're with me in that. In any and all of these moments, I can easily find myself wondering, how long will God put up with me? How many times can I make the same mistake and he'll stay with me? Have I rendered myself unusable? Gosh, what about the behaviors that I don't even realize are destructive? It kind of seems like that's Abraham's situation here. I mean, to us, it feels super obvious. Like, you're not telling the whole truth about Sarah. These Pharaoh and Abimelech, they're like mad at you. They're the voice of reason in these stories. What are you doing? Why'd you do this to us? But Abraham's like, well, worked out. <laughs> what, what about the... The stuff that we don't realize are destructive because we get rewarded for doing them. And it actually drives us deeper into bad habits. The fears go deeper. When we act this way, when we realize we're acting this way, I'll speak for me again. I start asking myself, do I really believe? If I keep failing to trust God in these certain moments, do I trust God? And then you get that fear, right? Like, maybe I've been lying to myself this whole time. 
Maybe, I, maybe I'm far from God. Maybe I'm fooling myself. Maybe you're with me. You go through this whole cycle, and then you go one layer more, and you start thinking about all the people in your life, your fellow believers, and you wonder how the rest of us would think and act if we knew what really happened in your head, if we knew what you really wanted. I wonder about that. Would you listen to a word I had to say if you knew the sort of pride and fear and greed and lust and the rest that festers in me? I I think you'd probably run screaming if you really knew. we, We don't see Abraham wrestle with any of this in this passage. It's just what I feel and what I've heard several of you feel when you see him do the same thing over again. Like, suddenly we're putting ourselves in, that, in his place. We are longing to know how it's going to go for them as we do the same things over and over again on purpose to save our skin or be comfortable. Abraham's behavior is terribly familiar and, and to be honest, I actually kind of want God to step in and spank Abraham. I want him to ream him. Like, it's like, it's like sometimes you want the, the mean coach. You want Bobby Knight to scream at you because you didn't make your layup. That's an Indiana basketball reference, so got you, Stephen. Um, like, we want the, to learn the lesson. Maybe that'll help, Right? Sometimes we, we long to be caught sometimes. <laughs> okay, what? I think maybe sometimes I might want long to be caught, but anyway, usually not. We want to have to face the music on our repeated sins. But in this story, something that has disturbed me is that God talks to Abimelech. He doesn't talk to Abraham. Did you notice that? And in chapter 12, there's, God never says anything to Abraham for this. It is Pharaoh and Abimelech who, who get frustrated and speak to Abraham about it. With Abraham, God is silent. At first, I, think, I thought I was disturbed because I wondered if God's silence meant tacit approval. Like, oh yeah, it's, no, it's okay, that's fine. That's a fine way to do things. You know, like, kind of like treat Sarah like a Trojan horse to get the edge on these kings. It, but, and, and then it felt like maybe he's a- enabling the addiction, you know? Well, if I, like, I'm just bailing you out each time. And so, you know, I, I, I think like an addict, and I know many addicts, like, well, we don't want that. We don't want to be saved and get a safety net each time. But the further I've gone, God's silence disturbs me in a different way. His silence feels like that disturbing kind of grace to me. That crushing, I know what you did, but I'm going to keep going without a word kind of grace. That I'm going to let you learn the lesson on your own kind of grace. That my plan is bigger than you kind of grace. I, I, I haven't quite learned this lesson as a parent yet, but 
there's times where you can just be there present with your child. They make a mistake. And just your quiet presence with them is the lesson that they need. Not a lecture. You can remind me of that. (laughs) But kids don't always need a lecture. This grace becomes standard issue in the Bible, actually. It's life-giving power that pulses through life-stealing fools like Abraham and later Jacob and, you know, Jacob's 12 sons and Moses and Miriam and Aaron and Gideon and Samson and Saul and King David and all the rest of the kings after him. We do it again and again. We repeat the same things. We repeat it in our individual lives and over generations. This is going to be Abraham's family. I mean, Jacob's name means deceiver. The same group of people who were the first to hear this story heard a series of speeches called, that's called Deuteronomy. Moses gave speeches at the end of his life, and Moses got the lesson. Here's what he says in one of these, the first speech in Deuteronomy. He, said, he looks out at the Israelites and he says, It is not because you were more numerous than all the other peoples that the Lord favored you and chose you. For, in fact, you were the least numerous of all peoples. Rather, it is because of his love for you and his faithfulness to the promise that he solemnly vowed to your ancestors that the Lord brought you out with great power, redeeming you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, the king. What is Moses saying to them? He's saying, God doesn't stick with you because you're strong and great. He actually sticks with you because you're small and weak. Later later on, the apostle Paul would get the same message. Paul would write, I will boast most gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may reside in me. So we come back to the question with Abraham, the question that's burning on my heart. When is it too much? When is it too much? I think the message of Abraham's life and the message in Moses' speech and on the words of Jesus and Paul, it's counterintuitive, but here's when it's too much. It is too much only at the moment that I believe that I've got it on my own. The moment I decide I don't need God. And even then, he gives Abimelech a dream. to redeem the situation. They needed no lecture from him because they got one from the pagan king that they hoodwinked. But when they did that, they almost messed up their ability to bless the nations. So the Israelites in the wilderness and increasingly believers in 2022 are asking the question, How do we relate to the nations? For the Israelites, the nations were everyone else. They were a nation of refugees without a home, wandering. They they were threatened all the time. For Christians in 2022, well, the nations are anyone who has not yet bowed the knee to King Jesus. And when the nations seem like a threat to us, our impulse is to act exactly like Abraham to be self-protective, 
to hide the truth about who we are. That involves a bit of deception and misdirection. Well, fine. But this story is meant to teach the people of God how his blessing is meant actually to pass through us to the nations, even when the nations are scary, even when they're threatening to us. One of the short letters of the New Testament is written precisely to address this issue. It's written to believers who are facing persecution on levels that we have no idea. I'm talking about the first letter that Peter wrote. He wrote it to to persecuted believers to say, in the face of persecution, here's how you act. All right? They were facing political pressure, false accusations, physical violence, just because they were followers of Jesus. So as Peter is sorting out how they're to behave, he turns in the strangest twist in his advice to them to Genesis chapter 20 to give them advice. Let me show you what I mean. First, to set up this section where he turns to Genesis chapter 20, here's what Peter writes. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from the fleshly desires that do battle against the soul and maintain good conduct among the non-Christians, that's, that word is nations, so that, though they, uh, so, so that though they may malign you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he appears. Now, this could be a, a reference to a lot of different stories, right? It could be just general good advice for Christians, Um, But Peter's establishing his purpose here for this section of his letter. I want to talk to you about your relationships with the nations so that by your behavior, they might turn to God. Like, okay, that's that's a kind of a cool mission. By the way we act, they would turn to God and experience the blessing. The implication is that believing in a shady way in front of the nations will drive them away. That's what Abraham did. And he almost drove Abimelech away. If Abimelech wasn't just terrified for his life at Abraham's God. It's fascinating as I studied this. um, Ancient Near Eastern cultures, like they did a lot of things that we would say are terrifying, terrible. to Human sacrifices and the rest, all sorts of scary stuff. But one thing that they hold held utterly sacred was the marriage relationship. In mo- there are writings in, in cultures all around ancient Israel that call um, adultery the, the great guilt or the great sin. And it's interesting because you see that when Abimelech speaks, he says, why would you bring such great guilt on us? It's the, this is like the worst thing that Abraham could have done. To Abimelech, he can't believe that a foreigner would put him in such mortal danger like this. Well, let me bring you back to Peter's letter. Peter's going to give his readers advice for three scenarios among the nations. He's going to give them advice generally for dealing with a government that is not a believing government, not friendly to Christians. He's going to give them advice when the believers are slaves and they have unbelieving masters. You could apply that to employees with unbelieving employers who don't like the fact that you're a Christian, and he's going to give advice to believing wives with unbelieving husbands. 
There's a hint here that the gospel spreads among the weak. Who's Peter writing to? Not the rich and powerful of society, but the lowest of the low, those without any privilege whatsoever. Jesus came for the weak. But I want to focus on what he says to wives because I think you'll notice some connections here. Here's what he says. In the same way, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Then even if some are disobedient to the word, they will be won over without a word by the way you live. When they see your pure and reverent conduct, let your beauty not be external, you know, the braiding of hair and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes, but the inner person of the heart, the lasting beauty of a gentle and tranquil spirit, which is precious in God's sight. For in the same way, the holy women who hoped in God long ago adorned themselves by being subject to their husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You become her children when you do what is good and have no fear in doing so. Then he turns to husbands. Husbands, in the same way, treat your wives with consideration as the weaker partners and show them honor as fellow heirs of the grace of life. In this way, nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, always, I've read this passage and a lot of the marriage advice in the New Testament, and like, I feel uncomfortable about it. Because, you know, like, oh, sub telling women to submit to men in a certain way in relationships and and. There's, you know, there's all sorts of opinions about that, and I don't like stepping on toes, so I usually avoid this passage. Um, but Genesis 20 is the key that unlocks 1 Peter 3, and 1 Peter 3 is the key that unlocks Genesis 20. You see, Genesis 20 is an example of life before the nations. It's one of the early examples. It's a test which Abraham nearly fails if it weren't for God's intervention. His relationship with Abimelech will be significant going forward. It's going to matter a lot in chapter 21. The first impression is super important. So if you're following along the whole of Genesis, there's a, there's a detail that should be a head scratcher in Genesis chapter 20. Guys, Sarah is 90. She's, she's old. She talks about her oldness in chapter 18. It, it, it's a bit of a head-scratcher that Abimelech comes in and is like, oh, you, you're coming into my household. All right, I'm not, you know, no offense to those who are in their 90s. Like, but Sarah's beauty at 90, well, what, do we, what sense do we make of this? But look at what Peter writes in 1 Peter. Go back to that, this slide. Like, look, look at what he writes about this, the, the inner beauty. There is something about Sarah. Peter is looking back at this story that is more than externals. She has a gentle and tranquil spirit. Her well-being is precious in God's sight. She becomes here a shining example of true beauty, no matter our age or stage. Peter directly connects this example to Sarah. Is there a better example of, of a wife obeying an unbelieving husband? Because that's who Abraham is in this story, you guys. 
He is failing to trust God. He is an unbeliever at this moment. And Sarah goes with his request. That's all about saving his own neck and putting her at risk. He denies his relationship with her in order to, to save his skin. Now, 1 Peter is addressing wives of unbelieving husbands. These women have come to faith. Peter's implication is that they're full-fledged members of the church, but they've got a, they've got a tough cross to bear. They're in a difficult situation. Their husbands may not allow them to participate in the life of the church. They may be required to, to go to other temples and worship in other ways. It's, but like so much of the gospel, the method, the method for demonstrating the message of Jesus that First Peter is calling them is not resistance or separation, but humility, submission, gentleness, and service. This is the call to all of us, not just, not just you ladies. This is the call to all of us. These wives are to love their husbands and submit to them, but their motivation comes from a different source, their deep obedience toward God. That's what an old uh, New Testament scholar, Peter David, says. Their deep obedience toward God is what drives them. All of that means that Abraham, he's the unbelieving husband. And in this scene, that's just what he is. He, do, he does not trust God to guard them. He does not treat Sarah as a fellow heir of the grace of life. So what's the lesson? The story of Abraham and the epistle of P Peter call the people of God to live righteously before the nations. Not to deny our relationships. Not to deny our connection with one another or our connection with the Lord. Because those connections are what ultimately draw the nations to the Lord. That's what the New Testament claims. That's what the whole of the Bible claims. God has to draw Abimelech in our story in spite of Abraham's behavior. He has to say, look, this guy has a special connection with me. Ask him to pray for you. Like, I'm sure that was a bummer question for Abimelech. Hey, faithless jerk, would you pray for me, please? I had a dream, and I'm supposed to ask. Peter ends the, his lesson by turning to husbands. This is probably for believing husbands with unbelieving wives. And in that situation, there's a different power dynamic in the first century. And husbands are s supposed to treat their wives like, hey, you, no matter how you believe, no matter how you treat me, I'm going to treat you like a fellow heir of the good promises. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share them freely with you. Exactly the opposite of what Abraham does in our passage. Uh, on its own, you know, in 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 First Peter, he he says, "Husbands, treat your wives well, so that nothing will hinder your prayers." And I've always read that as, "Oh, because like I guess if you have like trouble at home, it's harder to pray." Like, yeah, uh, sure. I guess if you have relationship stress, it's harder to pray. But now I'm reading this in light of Genesis chapter twenty, where he's looking back at this story. And, and Abimelech comes and asks Abraham to do what? Pray. 
Like, why does Peter mention prayer? He's looking back at Genesis chapter 20. And as the nations recognize our special connection with the Lord, in a time of need, they come asking. And I'll bet you guys have had this happen in your lives, where people who are like, yeah, I don't believe anything that you believe, but would you please pray for me? You're like, okay, (laughs) sure. That's an opportunity for us to pass the blessing based on our relationship. You see, both the promise and the relationship with the nations are for the nations. God is starting a theme that begins small in Genesis 20 and goes big in the life of Jesus. And it's in the life of Jesus we see someone who even though it put his life in utter risk, did not deny the most dangerous relationship he had. Do you, do you, can you think of all the times in the Gospels where Jesus says, I and my Father are one. I, I, I do what I see my Father doing. When you see me, you see the Father. This ticked the Pharisees off to no end. He knew he was putting his life at risk, but he didn't deny that relationship. And he paid the consequences. He was willing to die for it because that's how he passed the blessing to the nations. Let's pray. Father, so many times, Lord, I think the the sin that I repeat in, in subtle ways so often is hiding my relationship with you in certain times and definitely, Lord, hiding my relationship with certain parts of the body of Christ when they act in a certain way that embarrasses me. Lord, I, I try to, I, I act like I'm separate from them. I want them to be taken away. And yet, Lord, you have called us to stand on our identity as people in relationship with you and in relationship with one another for good or ill, embarrassing or not. Lord, I pray that as we come to the table, you would restore both relationships. In Jesus' name.